Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. Kittens, cats, their favorite podcasts. It's true. They all come running when we record. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing gets my cat into the room faster than turning on the podcast machine. It's true. What antiques were we talking about this week? Vintage rhinestone jewelry. Hell yeah. So you might be asking yourself, what is a rhinestone? D. What is a rhinestone? A good question, and I'm glad you asked it. (laughs) (laughs) The original rhinestones were actually brilliant little quartz pebbles from the Rhine River. Oh, hence the name. Surprisingly, that isn't even like the first fun fact that comes up if you like look up rhinestones. It took me like forever to find that fact, but I I guess kept desperately typing in like, why Rhine? Why rhinestone? (laughs) (laughs) The history of rhinestones... Past being sea glass, essentially. It starts at not a rhinestone, where people are desperate to make diamonds that are cheaper and capable of being produced in different shapes. Enter George Friedrich Strauss of Alsatia, which I am not clear is or is not still a country. Strauss? What was that? Our boy Strauss. Oh, our boy Strauss. Our boy Strauss. S-T-R-A-S-S. Strauss. Sound like one of those seagulls. Strauss? 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 Strauss's breakthrough in mimicking diamonds, but in different sizes and shapes and without the... <laughs> I'm going to make a snide without the difficulty cutting them. <laughs> were by carefully faceting glass and coating it in a metal powder. Oh, shiny. They were called paste stones or diamante. They are distinct from rhinestones. That's important to remember. For no reason other than I'm a pedant. Noted. And they are almost more difficult to work with than diamonds proper. They're made of glass, which you may have noticed is softer than diamond. Most things are, in fact. For more on that, check out our diamonds episode. (laughs) But yeah, because it was such a soft material, faceting it to look like a diamond was extremely difficult. Because of this, they were pretty much an art form of their own, and at this point in time, if you have genuine paste stones, they probably rival diamonds in price. Because most diamonds are almost worthless. For more on that, check out our diamonds episode. Well, and diamonds last a whole hell of a lot longer than paste glass. But not forever. For more on that, check out our diamonds episode. Wow, this is a great episode to get people to listen to that one. (laughs) Well... It was a 50-50. Either I was going to spend the remainder of the episode just saying Strauss, or I was going to spend the rest of the episode recommending our Diamonds episode. You know, I've been enjoying both, so don't don't worry about it. You go with what feels good. But yeah, this was particularly Georgian jewelry, given that it was late 18th century. And most of the stuff that even survived ended up getting cannibalized to make jewelry that was more to quote-unquote modern tastes. So Georgian pasted jewelry is pretty rare. A lot of people get really iffy if you refer to it as costume jewelry, which is the category I'd say rhinestones sit pretty neatly in. I've never heard them called anything else. What? I've never heard them called anything other than costume jewelry. Yeah, they're not. They should be considered fine jewelry, especially considering they're almost always set in silver or gold. Given Georgian tastes, usually gold. So the argument here is rhinestones are not costume jewelry. No, rhinestones are. I'm sorry. uh, Let me clarify. Okay. 
Because when I said, I think rhinestones are costume jewelry, you told me no. No, no, I misunderstood. And to go to my room and think about what I'd I done. I didn't say that, and the audio <laughs> record will, tr- will prove it. No, no, I'm sorry. Paste stones are not costume jewelry or rhinestones. They are fine jewelry. Rhinestones are costume jewelry. However, that doesn't always mean cheap. Does that make sense? Barely, but let's move on. Okay, well... I want you to know that Georgian paste is a fine jewelry and don't call it costume or the people who wear it will beat you to death with a hammer. Yeah? And a jeweler's hammer will take forever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Duly noted. Following this desire for easier, faster, and larger quantities of sparkly little rocks, in the late 19th century, Austrian jeweler, you might know this one, Daniel Swarovski. Swarovski? He produced the first rhinestone ever. They were high-quality faceted crystals that were painted or foiled properly with a very, very thin foil similar to gold leafing. This is always called foiling or a foil backing. That made them, in some cases, indistinguishable from diamonds and in other cases, more beautiful. Diamonds are trash. Ken, tell them where you can find more. For more information on why diamonds are trash, check out our diamonds episode. (laughs) A lot of people actually did used to come to me and be like, you ever wonder why rhinestones are just so much more visually appealing than diamonds? And it's because, well, it took more work to make them. And also the evil and sin hasn't like leaked into them, so they're just enjoyable. Unlike diamonds. (laughs) People were so obsessed with these beautiful sparkly crystals that in 1892, he patented his own mechanical cutting machine so that they could all be mass produced. And it's important to note that the idea that costume jewelry was for the lower classes or lesser people or poor people or seen as gauche and poverty chic, that's pretty recent, that concept. At the time, it was mostly just a fact of there weren't a lot of diamonds to go around and they were a pain in the ass and costume jewelry was more customizable to outfits, which as fashion would go on would become a greater and greater desire in terms of fashion jewelry. And just had more pretty designs, basically. It did also allow fancy jewelry to trickle down to the upper middle classes, but it wouldn't be considered poor people's stuff until, like, the 1990s. Damn. Mass production brought rhinestones all the way through the Victorian era, where Queen Victoria did some stuff, just a lot of stuff. Queen Victoria favored a lot of non-fine materials, rhinestone being one of them which really helped in terms of seeing rhinestone as like a fashion-forward, high-end thing. Flash forward to the 1920s. Coco Chanel is a fucking Nazi. And we're never gonna let you forget it. I refuse to mention her stupid, shitty, awful little fucking fashion name without reminding you that Coco Chanel is a real, actual Nazi. The more you know. Coco Chanel did make costume jewelry the hot new thing as she considered wearing fine jewelry in public to be a vulgar offense. It was basically flashing your wealth. I think those are big words coming from a bitch like her, but hey. (laughs) I mean, you know. (laughs) It wasn't just her. I think she gets a lot of unwarranted, like, credit. A lot of actresses and fashionistas at the time were kind of playing up large statement pieces, which were not generally possible with fine jewelry. So let's divert a little credit from her. Let's give her as little credit as possible because she was a fucking Nazi. A Nazi. Never forget. From then on, rhinestones just have been and always will be a thing because they are pretty, cheap, easy to produce, and not anywhere near as morally bankrupt as a diamond. Yay! Generally over, like, certain eras, 
what the rhinestones appear in would change slightly, which leads me to my next point. How to date a rhinestone piece. Don't Ask take it, it to Apple coffee. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Fuck. Can't stop me. I can't. I, I, we just dropped the same joke like simultaneously, but yours is better. <laughs> Don't send it your novel in progress. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't invite your mother along. <laughs> I want you to throw in like a few more and people can guess which ones have happened to you. That's my secret, Captain. They've all happened to me. <laughs> Don't make eye contact with them across a crowded bar that they invited you to and walk out the fucking door. Oh. <laughs> it's cool. My boyfriend now rules. Yeah. Shout out. Hey, babe. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, swear off. <laughs> Shit, hold on. I gotta take that again. <laughs> So one example of a trend making it easily dateable is Dior of the 1950s had started buying Swarovski's new invention, the Aurora Borealis rhinestone. Everyone loves these because, quite frankly, they are gorgeous. They are treated with a chemical salt that gives their surface a oil-on-water sort of shimmer and gleam. So shiny. Since it was a fairly recent invention... Any Aurora Borealis stone means that a piece is from 1955 or newer. Other things are unusual fashion pieces that we either did not see in the past or do not see currently. This <laughs> this is both for this one. Dress clips. Huh. They were basically brooches that you didn't have to put on a pin through. They are identifiable from shoe clips by having a cleated back similar to a soccer shoe. Especially when they get smaller, they look a lot like a shoe clip, but a shoe clip generally doesn't have a cleated back. These were produced in abundance from the 1930s and 40s, and that is about the only time you see these goddamned things. I do not understand what was going on with them. You can also look at things like the hardware. For example, a really heavy metal structure that focuses on the shape of the metal over the rhinestone, and the presence of a hook clasp, which is just a hook that you string around literally any part of the piece. I find them extremely annoying. I do not like them. Those are almost always from the 50s. You can also use uh, general visual cues. For example, an Edwardian piece will have a strong emphasis on what you would call girly themes like bows and hearts and very delicate filigree settings. Victorian pieces, I don't know, they were in a lot of shit. I kind of look for naturalist, orientalist, <laughs> Egyptian and mourning pieces. Yeah, over the course of about a hundred years, you do get into a lot of shit, turns out. Yeah, it's- they have less standard, like, styling than a lot of eras, and it's extremely frustrating. I generally call it more elaborate than Edwardian, but less elaborate than Georgian. But I find that, to the average person, that is a useless garbage explanation. Oh, no. Generally, Victorian is more elaborate than you'd find now, but not as elaborate as you are expecting when someone said the word Victorian at you. Okay. I find that one actually does tend to help people, especially with, like, furniture. Yes. Georgian, for example, extremely elaborate, what you might call Rococo. Emphasis on multicolored gems, sometimes paired with precious gems, because why not? And yellow gold, not necessarily the fine setting, but, a, like, a yellow gold colored coating over pot metal. Art Nouveau. 
Well, if you don't know what that looks like, quite frankly, um, I guess we should do an episode on it. <laughs> but <laughs> Art Nouveau is a very famous art style. Ken, can you help me describe it? Because I literally have a note here that says maybe Ken can make this make more sense. <laughs> Delicate, organic, free-flowing, smooth shapes. Beautiful. That was perfect. Thank you. Think Rivendell. Oh, yes. Which drew a great deal of inspiration from the Art Nouveau movement in the Lord of the Rings film. I knew you could. Uh, I knew you could. <laughs> Contrast with Art Deco, the inspiration for the dwarves. Art Deco, which is geometric, simple, and with an emphasis on unadorned clear stone. Extremely dwarvish. The only addendum I have for that is, as it pertains to jewelry, Art Nouveau tends to focus on muted and natural colors. This often means kind of like an almost burnished gold look. Burnished as in the color, not the act that you do to metal. And a lot of greens, browns, nature colors. After that, I get less good at identifying. I find that, like, from the 50s through the 80s, without having to explain it, people have, like, a pretty easy time, like, identifying them style-wise. So I just don't focus on it because I, I don't. That's not really, like, my scene. and I don't know a lot about it. You know, like, the 60s, all the colors were extremely ugly and everything was too big. The 70s, all, all those <laughs> problems got even worse. And the 80s are extremely cool and sort of like if Art Deco had started doing acid. How's that? There you go. <laughs> And frankly, don't ask me to include the 90s because I don't like to think about it. Next, other things you can do to identify ages of things, especially if it's a prominent or like labeled maker, like Coro or Trefari. You can just look up the patent information, silly. Oh, hey! Just like porcelain, you can also check stamps. What the stamp looks like can kind of give you occasionally some insight into when it was made. And you won't believe this, but costume jewelry is an extremely popular avenue of collecting, and there's a lot of information out there. As for reproductions, God... So many. There are two kinds of reproductions for rhinestone and other like vintage jewelry things, and that is a reproduction the way we would think of it today, and a period piece copy. That would be, for example, if Dior made a copy of a famous Edwardian piece that was in a museum. Does that make sense? Yes. While period piece copies actually do tend to be somewhat valuable, obviously nowhere near as valuable as the original, they have their own unique value. Generally, these period copies are most often produced by jewelry houses and will be marked in some way. If they're not, a reproduction will be crude and not well finished. Usually, especially with like a pot metal, they won't be polished and they won't look nice. The stones will always be glued in. This is a little like squirrelier. I usually use that for, are the stones glued in where an original piece should have been pronged? Because obviously, moving into the like 1920s and onward, glue got more and more common for setting rhinestones. You can use a black light for glue where glue ought not to be. This is also very helpful for repairs. Old glue, like mucilage, doesn't tend to show up under black light the way modern like plastic-based glues do. And any markings should be die-stamped into the metal and not molded. Molding a marking is a sign of a reproduction. To tell if it was molded in, look and see if there is a incised bar or box surrounding the name. It shouldn't look like that. And onto what spurred me to have this discussion in the first place. How do you take care of and clean rhinestones? The rule of thumb is to don't know water. None. Rhinestones hate water. The main issue is that it soaks behind the rhinestone settings and destroys the foiling or leads to tarnish of the foil, which makes the stone look dark. Your best bet is to use a dry, soft cloth and kind of like polish the dirt out and then use compressed air to get it out of nooks and crannies. Crannies? Nooks and crannies, please. No. 
If that is not doing it for you, you can very, very, very carefully spot clean the metal with vinegar. I've used this a ton on like pot metal, metals that I can't identify, pretty much any non-fine metal. It works really well for cleaning and shining, but it has to be just barely damp and avoid the stones. And you can polish the rhinestones with an ammonia-free window cleaner, do not put ammonia near anything that you value, with a very barely kissed baby soft bristle toothbrush, and kind of buff the rhinestones out, and then immediately dry it. Immediately. Immediately. If you absolutely have no, like, if it's covered in something yuck and you have to soak it, which I don't see a lot of situations where you'd have to do that, get a blow dryer and dry it immediately to prevent the moisture from eating away at it. I didn't know uh, until very recently that rhinestones were this delicate. I don't want to make people think that they shouldn't be worn. Rhinestone pieces are made to be worn and enjoyed, but there's nothing wrong with treating them right and making them last a good long time. As for resetting gems, this one's easy. Well, okay, it's not that easy because I don't know how to tell you how to size gems. I usually just get a fistful and like plop them in and see what fits. Also, don't do this with any piece that's like important to you. Get a professional to restore it. Can't stress this enough. But with some like cheaper like thrift store finds, it can be kind of easy and fun to repair them. G-S cement is an epoxy, especially formulated for jewelry. So go nuts. If you want to collect vintage rhinestones and maybe even sell them, your best bet is two rules of thumb. Don't go to an antique store to buy them and try not to spend more than 10 or $15 on a piece. Sound advice. Unless you're like a seasoned collector, anything more than that is going to be a mistake. And, like, obviously a seasoned collector doesn't need me to be telling them this. And as for things that are really desirable, obviously there are tons and tons and tons of rhinestones. Here's a couple things to consider. Popular manufacturers, Trafari, Chanel, Dior, Weiss, Joseph with two Fs, Eisenberg, Hobie, Eliza Schiaparelli. Other things to look at are, is it an unusual or fun design? Is it a frog? Everyone wants to buy a frog. Everyone wants to buy a frog. <laughs> Tell me that ain't true. But yeah, in general, does this like appeal to a certain kind of person? Are there different shapes and sizes of rhinestones? Are the rhinestones colorful? Are they in good condition? Is the setting interesting? Does the piece have a spattering of rhinestones or is it mostly rhinestone? Depending on what your customer base looks like, I find more rhinestones, more colorful, more interesting always sells better. And people do gravitate to rhinestone only pieces as opposed to a couple of rhinestones in a metal setting. And themed rhinestones are just generally always a hit. I know more than five people who collect strictly Christmas-themed rhinestone brooches. And don't be afraid of unfashionable jewelry pieces. They come into fashion cyclically, it never ends, and there are surprising uses for some pieces. For a really long time, people would say not to buy brooches because they were dowdy and no one wore them. And then it became very popular to put brooches on your bridal floral settings. And suddenly everybody sold out. Yeah, and then it was really hard to keep a rhinestone brooch in stock. Man, weddings really dictate a lot of antique fashion. They really do. But as long as it's pretty, like I said, don't worry about if you can't think of a like a useful place for it because your customer has one and they want it. And that has been How to Rhinestone. How to Rhinestone. Now, if you want to be a rhinestone cowboy, I cannot help you with that, except that hopefully this has given you insight on how to care for and select rhinestones for your rhinestone cowboy outfit. There we go. <laughs> don't actually, I don't even know what it means. I think it implies the cowboy is a homosexual, but I'm not sure. That's, see, okay, that's what I was hoping is that it was just like a flamboyant like beautifully coutured cowboy, but that's too good. So that means it's immediately not what it is. 
but it could be. Come on, everyone, let's change that. <laughs> Sources for this episode include costumejewelrycollectors.com. You'll never guess. This is an amazing resource if you need to check markings and like deep dives into designs by individual jewelry houses. Collectorsweekly.com. Costume jewelry rhinestone. Quickjewelryrepairs.com. Antique vintage jewelry. Antique-jewelry-investor.com. Caring for rhinestone costume jewelry. Invaluable.com. A blog post on costume jewelry. Forbes.com. Everything you need to know about collecting vintage jewelry according to an expert. And collectorsweekly.com, an interview with rhinestone costume jewelry appraiser and repair person Rosalie Saya. Excellent article, I recommend it. If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email us directly, antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you liked all of this sparkling conversation we had today, consider scrolling on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leaving us a review. Any kind of review helps, but I find I'm partial to the ones that make me sound good. <laughs> if you would like to peruse a fine selection of vintage goods, as well as t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on them, you can check out our Etsy at etsy.com shop slash antiquesfreaks. Soon coming, as you may have guessed, rhinestone jewelry. <laughs> Please God help me. It's almost worse than the clowns. How dare you? The clowns are a delight. You're right. I'm sorry. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or our special bonus episode presentation of the Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir. Goodbye.